You're listening to a sermon preached at Chael English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would now speak to us through your Word, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your Spirit wants to be telling us. Father, we pray that you would help us not just to become smarter sinners and know just a few more things about the Bible, but we pray that you would soften our hearts, and by your Spirit, we pray that you would transform us by renewing our minds. Help us, Lord, to not just be hearers of your word, but doers. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Invitations. Invitations. Over the years, I've been lucky enough to receive some amazing invitations. I've received invitations to lots of weddings, and that's always great fun, right? Weddings are awesome. I've received invitations to restaurant openings. I've received invitations to even a cafe opening and even a bar opening. I don't know what I was doing there, but it was awesome nonetheless. This one time, I also received an invitation to an opening night of a musical, and that was really special. And just to top it all off, I remember this one time I was even invited to eat dinner at Jerry's house. Amazing. That's the pinnacle of my life. And I knew life doesn't get much better than that. It's true. I've received some amazing invitations over the years. But I've got to say, friends, none of those invitations that I've received, not a single one of them, even begins to compare to this amazing, brilliant, life-changing invitation that you and I are going to see in God's Word today. This invitation that Jesus sets before each and every single one of us in today's passage. We want to look at that together. Well, so far in Matthew's Gospel, uh, you and me, we've seen Jesus declaring that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we've seen him, as we journey through this Gospel, we've seen him declare that he himself is the key to entering into that kingdom. But of course, not everyone has believed the message, have they? Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus denouncing various towns, uh, various towns that rejected Jesus and rejected his message, despite the great miracles that he performed in those towns. So at this point of the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew, you might be expecting Jesus to feel kind of discouraged. I'd be discouraged if I was Jesus. At this point, you might be expecting Jesus to feel a bit sad, because he's been rejected by all these people. But, know this, he isn't discouraged. Not at all. Instead, Jesus knows that ultimately, it is his heavenly Father who decides who accepts or who rejects the message. It's up to God the Father. Uh, For those people who think of themselves as wise and learned, those people who think of themselves as experts in life and experts in the things of God, to all those self-reliant know-it-alls, who see no need for Jesus, well, to those ones, God is happy to simply leave them in the dark. God is happy to simply leave them in their unbelief. But to those who are like little children, those who see themselves as needy and requiring help, to those who are willing to humbly listen to Jesus and accept the message, to those ones, God is happy to open up their eyes to all the truths of Jesus and the truths of his message. See, friends, ultimately, Jesus knows that God the Father is the one who is in control of those who either accept or reject the message. It's not even up to them. It's up to their maker, God the Father. So that's why 
Jesus doesn't get discouraged. Instead, he praises his heavenly father. He praises God. And then Jesus goes on to point out that the fact is uh, that there is no other way to truly know God the Father than through himself. That's his big claim. And if you know what Christianity is about, that's really what Christianity is about. Jesus comes to us and says, the only way you can know God, the only way you can know your creator is through me. There is no other way. Which is why he'll go on to say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why? No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is trying to teach us that him as God's son, he is in a unique position to make God known to us. He has a unique ability and he's in the unique position to make God known to all kinds of people. Not just known in an intellectual sense, although that's important, but also known in a relational sense. In a relational sense, in in an intimate sense. Jesus is the key to bringing people into fellowship with God to bring people into relationship with God their Father. Uh, look with me at Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 to 27. You'll see it there. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things, that is, the truths of Jesus' message. You've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Can you see? As the Son of God, Jesus is the key to knowing God. Jesus is the key, the only way to having an intimate friendship with God, fellowship with God. And so, if you wanted to have a relationship with God the Creator, then you've got to come to Jesus like a needy child. Like a needy child. Not all wise and smart and learned, not all self-sufficient, but like a needy child. You've got to come like a little kid. And it's in this context that Jesus offers this extraordinary invitation. Absolutely extraordinary. I reckon... Honestly, honestly, this might be the most amazing invitation you have ever heard in your life. It's an invitation to anyone, anywhere. It's an invitation to anyone who's weary or burdened to come to him so that he can give them rest. Rest so that he, Jesus, can give to them who are weary and burdened and tired and exhausted and just done with life to give them rest, his rest. And suddenly, all the tired people who were up late last night watching the soccer, they're like, yes, rest. That's exactly what I need, some rest. But uh, I'll have you know, that's not necessarily the kind of rest that Jesus has in mind here. I actually think the rest that Jesus is talking about is actually a lot deeper It's actually a lot more significant than a three-hour nap. It's a significant and a deeper rest. And I think for you and me to truly understand this invitation, we first need to understand what rest is in the Bible. We need to know what the Bible defines as rest and what the Bible means when it talks about rest, when it talks about people who are weary and burdened, is this. Uh, Actually, let me say it like this. You might remember that the first rest that we hear about in the whole Bible 
is the rest that God takes. Do you remember that? In the creation account? Remember what happens after six days? On the seventh day of creation, God rested. That's the first time in the Bible we read about rest. God rests. God does the work of creation, and then on the seventh day, he rested. Not because he was tired. Friends, our God doesn't get tired. If he got tired, he wouldn't be God. But that's not why he rested. He rested in order to enjoy his creation, to sit back, to take it all in, and to enjoy the things that he has made. Did you catch that? That's important. God rests in order to enjoy all that he has made. And so, it's into that rest that Adam and Eve find themselves walking with God. That's what we read, right? Walking with God in the cool of the evening. You see, true biblical rest is ultimately about an intimate, peaceful, and a loving relationship with creator God. Biblical rest, as defined in the Old Testament, is all about enjoying God. It's it's all about enjoying the blessings of God. It's all about resting in relationship with God. I get this question uh, asked once in a while, how do you rest? As a Christian, how do I rest? I'm burning a how do I rest? Well, according to Genesis, biblical rest is when we enjoy God. It's when we enjoy the blessings of God. That is true biblical rest. But of course, we know as the story goes on, the original uh, rest, it's lost, right? When Adam and Eve fall, uh, fell in sin, they were cast out of God's presence, and we know that they lost their rest with God. They were cast out of the garden of rest. They were kicked out of the garden of Eden. They were replaced, uh, or their garden was replaced in a life uh, that was filled with weariness, sin. It was a fallen world. It was a world that was full of burdens. But then, of course, later in the Bible, we see that Eden rest restored again, don't we? We see it. We see God's rest restored again as his people enter into the promised land. In fact, it's Joshua who describes the promised land as, and I quote, a place of rest. That's what Joshua called it. Because there again, people are in the presence of God, enjoying him enjoying his creation, enjoying his blessings. They're enjoying relationship with their God. Rest once again. But then, of course, we know how the story goes. The people sin again. And because of that, people are thrown out of the promised land. We know that. And again, they're taken away into exile. That's God's judgment, God's punishment. And so now, as you and I come to the time of Jesus here in the Gospel of Matthew, that is where we find ourselves. That's the context, historically. We find the people back in the promised land, geographically, yes, but even though they're back physically, spiritually speaking, they're still very much in exile. They're still outside of God's promises. The effects of sin remain, and that's why God's people are not at rest, real biblical rest. I mean, just think about it for a second. Think about the world that Jesus is speaking into. They're living under the rule and reign of a foreign oppressor, the Roman Empire, And think about it, the people there, right, we've seen this in the gospel, they still get sick, they still get paralyzed, they still get blind, they still get mute, they still get deaf, they still get demon-possessed, right, that's what we've seen. They still face storms out at sea, they live in a world where little girls die, God's judgment very clearly still remains, and therefore, their souls are weary, their souls are burdened. They're weighed down. And it's into this light that Jesus comes and he now says to them, come to me, 
All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Biblical rest, real rest. Jesus is saying to this fallen world, to all the people struggling and suffering, he's saying, come to me. If you're weighed down, come to me. If you're discouraged and if you're hurt by this world, if you're hurt by the effects of your own sin or the effects of other people's sin, or if you're hurt by this world, come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you the thing that you need, which is rest. Come to me and I will give you relief. I will give you peace. That's what Jesus promises. Jesus is saying, come to me and I will put you back in relationship with God, your creator, in the way that it was always meant to be. That's what he says. That is his invitation. That's his invitation. Jesus says that to take up his invitation will also mean taking up his yoke. His yoke. You know what a yoke is? This is a yoke. This is a yoke. It's funny, right? But this is what a yoke is. And you might have seen yokes on cattle or goat or sheep or other farm animals, but oftentimes yokes were used on humans. So a servant or a slave would have a yoke and it would help them do the heavy lifting and they would put this wooden thing across their shoulders and usually slaves did this to carry stuff, heavy things. Thanks, guys. So Jesus is saying, if you accept my invitation, you'll need to become my servant. That's the catch. Servants use yokes. Jesus is saying, if you want to accept my invitation of this biblical rest, you'll need to accept my invitation of becoming a servant. In other words, you'll have to become my disciples if you want this rest. In other words, you'll have to listen to me. You'll have to commit to me. You'll have to learn from me. Church, this is really important. Jesus is saying that the rest that he offers It comes with certain obligations. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you make me the Lord of your life, if you make me the king in your heart and your life, then you will get rest. But Jesus wants you to know he is no taskmaster. He's not a dictator. He's not a bully. No, he says that his yoke is easy. In other words, it fits well. His yoke is easy and his burden is not heavy, it's light. It's light. Jesus is no taskmaster, he's not harsh, he's not brutal. Instead, he's gentle. He's humble in heart. You might have read that great book, Gentle and Lowly, that's what he's saying. He's humble, he's gentle. In other words, Jesus is not in this for himself. He's in this for the best. He doesn't have selfish motivations here to just accrue slaves, no. Jesus is in this for the best of his people. He wants his people to flourish. He wants the best for those people who would come to him and deny everything else and everyone else and follow him and receive this great invitation from him. So look with me at verse 28 to 30. Chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus invites all the burdened, all the weary people to come to him and to find rest in him. Rest for their souls. What an invitation, right? Don't you want this? This is amazing. What an invitation. 
But then, of course, all of this means nothing if Jesus isn't actually able to make good on the promises of his invitation, right? It doesn't mean anything. If you can't back it up, it doesn't mean anything. It's just empty words. If Jesus can't give us this, if he doesn't have the authority to provide what he promises, then this means nothing. So then, the question is, naturally, is he? Is he able? Is he able to do it? Like, is he actually able to give me the rest that I need, that I desperately crave for? Because, well, we're going to find that in the rest of today's passage. Because as we read on, the story changes, and you and I follow him as Jesus walks through a grain field with his disciples. It's all connected. It's all connected. And it just so happens that Jesus and his boys, they're doing this, walking across a grain field, they're doing it on the Sabbath. In other words, they're doing it on the day of rest. That's when they're doing it. Now, don't let the significance of that pass you by, yeah? That's important. You might remember that one of God's Old Testament commands was that his people were to observe a day of rest. That was the Sabbath. Sunset Friday through to sunset on Saturday, that was the Sabbath. That was a law for God's Old Testament, Old Covenant people. It was a day when God's people had to stop their regular work. They had to stop their regular jobs so that they could enjoy the fruits of their work. So they could enjoy what God graciously provided them and so they could enjoy fellowship with God. That was the intention behind the rest. And if you can see what's going on with the Old Testament law, you can see that it's meant to be just a little taste of what Adam and Eve had back in the garden. That's what it's connected to. It was a good command. It was a beautiful command. It was a delightful command. And here we see the disciples enjoying the Sabbath by walking through a grain field with Jesus. But they're not alone in this grain field because we see that there are some Pharisees as well. Now, of course, the Pharisees, you might know, they're the group of religious leaders. And uh, for them, rules were very important, especially religious rules, very, very important. God's Old Testament rules were everything to the Pharisees. These Pharisees, um, they made it their job to full-time study in great detail all of God's laws. That's why they were experts in the law. And what Pharisees did back then is they would get together, they all know the law very well, inside and out, they would get together and they would debate these laws. That's what made them Pharisees. They they, they would debate these laws and they would try to work out, what does this mean? What does that mean? And they would ask questions like, what do these laws look like? In other words, how do these laws work themselves out in real life situations? And so when it comes to a law like the Sabbath law, Well, as you can imagine, the Pharisees had come up with their own interpretation. So the Pharisees, uh, sadly, they took God's good command, don't work on the Sabbath, they took his delightful command, and they started to ask questions like, hmm, what does it exactly mean to work? Look, low-key, I think there was helpful intentions. You've got to give it to them. And they concluded things like, well, to work, it would mean carrying something. That sounds like work. Carrying something would be work. Uh, Carrying heavy loads would be considered work, right? Because it's heavy. Which led them to ask further questions like, well, what exactly constitutes heavy? You know what I mean? Five kilos, 20 kilos, can I lift my child? That my child's heavy. What's heavy? And on and on and on it went. And so these Pharisees, they spent endless hours arguing with one another about whether a man was allowed to lift a lamp and move it from one place in his house to another place on the Sabbath day. That's, that's the kind of things that they would argue about. So um, another thing that, example that has survived is Pharisees would argue about whether it was sinful for a tailor 
to walk out of his front door on the Sabbath with a needle tucked into his robe, right? Is he going to work? It's sinful. So as you can see, uh, these extra rules became the essence of the Pharisees' religion. And what God had originally intended as to be a beautiful command that would actually enhance people and their relationship with their creator, these Pharisees destroyed it. They perverted it. They ruined it. This is why we can't have nice things. The blessings that were meant for God's people all of a sudden became a burden. Just low-key, I wonder if you're like that. Do you ever take the blessings of God and turn it into a burden? Well, the Pharisees were first to do it. Instead of them just being able to enjoy God and enjoy rest with God, it led them to being all stressed out about whether they want to mess up or not. Stressed out about, am I going to break a law unintentionally? Uh, But the Pharisees, they considered themselves experts in this area. So as far as they were concerned, their teachings were the key to true rest. Their teachings, they believed, was the key to keeping God happy. And so unsurprisingly, when the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples picking grain with their hands in the grain field on the Sabbath day, well, that's work. That's a form of reaping. They're working. And so the Pharisees go to Jesus and they bark at him. Look, 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 Jesus, what are your disciples doing? What are they doing? They, can't you see? They're breaking the law, or at least their interpretation of the law. But Jesus, he doesn't rebuke his disciples because they're not doing anything wrong. Instead, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he explains to them that actually he is the one with real authority when it comes to matters of rest. What's his point? Jesus is saying, when it comes to rest, I'm the expert, not you. I'm the authority, Pharisees, not you. And he does that by comparing himself to some other people who had great authority. Firstly, Jesus compares himself with King David, King David from the Old Testament. Jesus gets the Pharisees to remember the time when David and his mighty men were really, really hungry. And you, know, you can see what's going on, right? These guys are Bible experts. They know all the Bible stories. So they know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Uh, so Jesus um, it tells them, do you remember David, King David, his men? They were really hungry. So what did they do? You know it. They went into the house of God. The temple, you're not meant to go there. They went into the house of God, they went into the tabernacle, and they ate the consecrated bread, which of course only the priests were allowed to eat. Now why, Pharisees, why was King David able to do that and not be guilty? Well, it all came, it all came down to his authority. It all came down to the authority that David had. His authority as God's anointed one on God's mission allowed him to do those things. That's why it was okay for him to do what was not okay for ordinary people to do. In a similar way with ambulance drivers. I thought about this, like paramedics, ambulance drivers. Think about it. Ambulance drivers, they have a special authority to speed down para road whenever they want if they're on a special mission. The ambulance driver has the authority to do what most of us ordinary people would get in trouble for. Can you see what's going on? It's an illustration, I think. So Jesus is saying, that he has the same authority as David did. Secondly, Jesus reminds the Pharisees about how it's okay for the priests to be working in the temple on the Sabbath. The priests are allowed to work on the Sabbath in the temple. Why? Well, again, it all came down to their authority. Their authority and their mission. They have a special mission from God. They have important work to do in the temple. So Jesus' point here is that his work is even more important than the work in the temple. Why? Because he is the greater temple. He is greater than that temple in the Old Testament. So according to Jesus, 
He has an authority that the Pharisees do not have. He is the expert on these matters of rest, not them. All the Pharisees are doing with all the extra laws, it's burdening people. It's not blessing them. It's not giving them rest. It's burdening them. Just like the religious leaders in the days of Hosea, these Pharisees have focused on laws at the expense of people. And that's not what God wants. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, he desires what's good for people. God's not interested in mindless rules. God's not interested in mindless law-keeping. So, according to Jesus, yes, the disciples have transgressed these extra rules that you Pharisees have laid out. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are not the final authority. I am. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he is the Lord of rest. That's really important. Jesus is the Lord of rest. So the Bible says, if Jesus is the Lord of rest, and if you feel unrested, if you're exhausted with life, and if you're constantly on a cycle of burnout, then I wonder how close you are to actually the source of rest. It's a good diagnostic question, I think. Question one, am I burning out? Am I exhausted? Am I struggling? Okay, yes. Question two, am I intimate with Jesus? Because he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. And it's with that authority that he declares his disciples to be innocent. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. Chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath. See, Jesus, and not the Pharisees, is the authority when it comes to matters of rest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of rest. And with that, Jesus and his disciples, they leave the grain fields. They leave and they go and enter into one of the local synagogues, one of the old school churches. Uh, but apparently, these Pharisees aren't finished with Jesus just yet, so they follow them into the synagogue. And the Pharisees have an intention of trapping Jesus. They want to get Jesus into trouble somehow. They hate him. And in the synagogue, there happens to also be a man with a shriveled hand. There's a man who has a disability. He has a shriveled hand. Here is a man in the synagogue that knows obvious suffering. Here is a man who knows what suffering meant, not just with a shriveled hand, but with a weary soul. He knows what it means to be a social reject and an outcast. He knows what it means to have no friends. He knows what it means to physically suffer. But for the Pharisees, this man is nothing more than bait for their trap. And so the Pharisees, they ask Jesus, Jesus, is it lawful to heal someone like, say, this man right here? Is it lawful to heal someone like this on the Sabbath? And of course, you guessed it. According to the Pharisees, they've already concluded that it isn't sinful. You know, sometimes people ask a question, they already have an answer, they don't really care what you think. It's like the Pharisees. They, already, they don't care what Jesus says. They've already concluded that it's not lawful. No way. Of course it's not lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath because healing is work. 
So, in reply, Jesus simply points out the hypocrisy. He highlights to them the hypocrisy, and he asks them a question. He says, okay, fellas, which of you, if you had a sheep that happened to fall into a ditch on the Sabbath, which of you wouldn't go and rescue your sheep out of a ditch? Which one of you? And of course, Jesus knows each of them. He knows uh, what they will do. And of course, every single one of them would go and rescue their sheep, even if it was on the Sabbath. Hence, the hypocrisy of these Pharisees. Uh, Not to mention their complete lack of love for people. It's another big problem. And so Jesus declares the truth of what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. He declares that it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Doing what is good is something that we should never take a break from. And with that, Jesus gets this weary man to stretch out his withered hand, and he heals him completely, miraculously, perfectly. He heals him right there in front of the Pharisees. And what do these Pharisees do in response? What do these wise and smart and learned experts do? Do they rejoice because this man has been miraculously healed? No. Do they repent? And do they turn to Jesus in faith and repentance? No. Do they take a moment to think that maybe there is just something special about Jesus because of this miracle that they saw right in front of their eyes? No. They just go away and they plot Jesus' murder. They go away and they plot how they're going to kill Jesus. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 9 to 14. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and he was completely restored just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Don't you read this and just think to yourself, I wonder if the Pharisees asked Jesus, Jesus, is it lawful to plot murder on the Sabbath? Because that's what they're doing, right? It's absolutely crooked. Uh, Well, Jesus, when he learns about the plot of the Pharisees, he doesn't want a confrontation. He doesn't want to fight them. He doesn't want to defend himself. He doesn't want to stand and yell. He just walks away. He just walks away. And unsurprisingly, Lots of people there in the synagogue, they follow him out. Probably all the people that saw the great miracle, it would make sense. Uh, And after they follow him out, the crowds, they get all their friends, all their family who are sick and suffering and weary and burdened, and they bring them to Jesus. And on this day of rest, Jesus does lots of more good. He heals them all. He brings rest to all the weary and burdened people who come to him. And as Matthew writes all this, as he narrates this for us, he can't help but see that Jesus is ultimately the great servant that Isaiah prophesied about centuries centuries ago. He sees the connection. He sees that Jesus is the one who actually has God's spirit upon him. The one who wouldn't quarrel or yell or fight back when treated poorly, but the one who would be tender, compassionate to the downtrodden, tender-hearted, toward the weary, gentle, to the suffering, tender to the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. He makes that connection. The one who, in the end, would bring justice to victory. 
in other words, the one in the end, who would set all things right in this world just the way God intended. A hope that would uh, not be just for the people of Israel, but a hope for weary people everywhere, all the nations of the world, including here, Australia as well, everyone, the hope of heaven. That's what Jesus brings. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 15 to 21. Chapter 12, verse 15 to 21. Aware of this, the Pharisees plot to kill him. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And with that, today's passage comes to an end. So church, as we now very briefly think about the significance of this passage for you and me here today, let me begin by asking you a question. The question is this, are you weary? Are you weary? Does the day find you a burdened soul? I don't just mean, did you sleep late last night? I mean, no, is your soul weary in the biblical sense? Are you weary and are you burdened in your soul? Are you wearied by your own sin? Are you wearied by the sin of others? Are you wearied by this broken and fallen world with all its hurts, frustrations, and disappointments? Life can be hard, I think. A lot of us are suffering right now with things in life. Well, let me ask you, if you are a wearied person, then what is it that you reach for in your weariness? What do you reach for when you're weary? Do you reach for the chocolate bar? Is that what you reach for? Or do you reach for the remote control? Maybe if I watch 30 episodes, I'll numb the pain or something like that. Or do you reach for that website? What do you reach out for in your weariness? Do you reach out for your credit card? Or do you reach out for that travel brochure? Do you reach out or the bottle? When you're weary, do you find yourself reaching out for the arms of the one that is not yours? See, friends, the Pharisees, with all their rules about keeping the Sabbath, they thought they were the experts when it comes to rest. But in the end, as we can see, their way, with all their stupid rules, it offered no true rest. It offered nothing. In fact, they just burdened people all the more. Church, here's an application. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't pretend to be an expert on rest. You're not. Jesus is. He's the authority, not you. Don't pretend to be the expert on rest. Don't be like these know-it-all Pharisees thinking that you're the expert, thinking that you don't need Jesus, thinking that all these other things are going to bring the relief that you crave. Church, get this. Jesus is the expert here. 
When it comes to matters of rest, Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's the very source of rest. Rest, in the biblical sense, originates from the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the only place you and I will find rest. We can go scrape our souls inside out trying to find it. You can buy everything in the world and you can wreck yourself in the process. You can try every single substance. You're not gonna find rest. Well, not biblical rest. Only through the source of rest. My dear sister, my dear brother, listen to him. Come to him. Come to Jesus when you're weary. Come to Jesus. Well, then, by way of application, the next logical question is this. What will it mean to come to Jesus in our weariness? What will it mean to come to Jesus in our weariness? Well, church, I think it means at least three things. First, I think it means coming to Jesus for salvation, first and foremost. That's pretty clear. I think it means coming to Jesus for salvation and letting him release us once and for all from the burden of sin and guilt and shame as we find forgiveness and new life in him, as we find genuine hope, lasting hope in him through his death on the cross. I think that's the first thing it actually means. We need to find in Jesus that intimate, personal, loving relationship with God that our souls long for. So here's the first uh, application. If you're not yet a Christian, if you don't yet follow Jesus, then this passage is telling you loud and clear, go to Jesus and find that rest that you desperately crave for and that you actually need. Go to Jesus and be saved. What will it mean to come to Jesus in our weariness? Firstly, I think it means coming to him for salvation. Secondly, I think it means coming to Jesus and living life his way putting on his yoke. Did you catch that? I think that's what it'll mean. It means becoming his disciple. There's a very big difference between a churchgoer and a disciple. There's a very big difference between a pew warmer and a disciple of Jesus. Very big difference. One is religious. One is go through the motions. One is, I don't know why I go to church, but I keep going to church. One is, I can't decide on Jesus yet, even though I know his Lord, I'm not gonna commit to him. It's like a marriage. I'm not gonna commit to him. A disciple is different. A disciple recognizes the desperate need and like a child, they've gone to Jesus and humbly said, mercy, I need you to save me, Jesus, because I'm a wreck without you. I'm absolutely hopeless without you. That is a disciple. I know, friends, that on the surface, the thought of becoming a servant, right, the thought of becoming a disciple, the thought of obedience, it might not sound like rest to you, all right? Let me level with you. But the fact is this. When you're living with Jesus as your Lord, when you're living life his way, the fact is, you're actually doing exactly what you were created for. That's why when you meet a Christian and they tell you about their life, even though their life might be difficult and full of suffering and hurt, they're actually rested. They're actually restful, why? Because they've found the living water in Jesus, that's why. Because they've found the source of rest. And in the same way, It's as we obey Jesus, who is our gentle and humble and sympathetic and loving creator, that is where you and me find true freedom. That's where we find true rest in our lives. So secondly, obedience. What will it mean to come to Jesus in our weariness? Firstly, you've got to come to him for salvation. Secondly, it means living your life his way. It means obedience, becoming his actual disciple. Thirdly, I think it means coming to Jesus in all the weary moments of our lives. In these next seven days coming up ahead, you're gonna find yourself weary because of different reasons. Whatever's going on, you're gonna be weary. And I think an application is when those moments come, run to him, to Jesus. 
All the times in the next week, all the times that you're tempted to reach out for that chocolate bar, to reach out for your credit card, to reach out for that website, reach out for the bottle, reach out for the travel brochure, when you're tempted to do those things, first stop yourself and go to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Go to Jesus who can actually give you the rest that you need. Pour out your heart to him in prayer. Just say, Jesus, my life sucks and I am hungry for you. I'm thirsty for genuine rest. And let him refresh you as you open up his word and hear his voice. As you open up his word and see what he's on about and see what he wants from you. As you see the wonderful promises that you can only find in scripture, especially his promises that this world is not all there is. Especially his promises that for the believer, a greater life is coming. A day when all things that are wrong will be corrected and put right by Jesus. That promise, the promise that there's coming a day where once for all, all sin and weariness will be done. There is coming a day where burden doesn't exist. Think about that. That is what Jesus offers to you. I'm done. I'm finished now. An awesome invitation, wouldn't you agree? An amazing, awesome invitation. I bet it's the greatest invitation you will ever hear. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Friends, do you want that? Me too. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you and we are weary. We are weary with this world. We are weary with all the sin and the brokenness. Father, we come to you as a weary people. But Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, offers weary people like us this amazing invitation. Father, we want this so badly, and Lord, we want to tell you that we accept. We accept this invitation that your Son offers to us. Our Lord and Father, in our times of weariness, please help us to go to the Lord of the Sabbath, to go to King Jesus. Please help us to find biblical rest in the forgiveness of our sins. Help us to find your rest as we obey him. And help us to find rest as we cry out to you in prayer. And help us to find rest as we trust in the good promises in your word. Our loving Father, we praise you that the day is coming when we will not be weary or burdened anymore. And so, Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.